It is time to start. Everybody doing good tonight? Well, there is no finality in history. The chapter seems to be rounded off here in uh, Nehemiah 13 as we uh, come close to the conclusion. It actually had a perfect conclusion at the end of chapter 12. And, uh, of course, at the end of that, kind of served as an introduction to another chapter. And, uh, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah, it seems like they could have reached quite the climax. Uh, A happy scene, dedicating the wall. Um, Of course, the the old um, line that, uh, what is it, um, they lived happily ever after. It doesn't happen. That's just a fable. Fairy tale is what it is. We don't live in fairy tale land until the kingdom of God in its eternal state happens. Here, that doesn't happen as much as we would like it to be. Um, of course, at that time, it seemed most of the difficulties had vanished by the time you get to the end of chapter 12 or in that way. And there, there had been a new order that had been created there. And uh, there was widespread enthusiasm amongst the people. You remember, they were just they were they were pumped uh, spiritually with what had been happening. And uh, yet, if it just closed with that chapter, which we would kind of like to see it that way, and not see thirteen, at the same time, it would have been artificial, because we live in a fallen world. We're all broken people. And of course, Christ, He restores us. He restores um, things in our lives. Um, But the thing is, as we are Christians, we still struggle. We still battle with the flesh. We still battle with the world. We battle with the devil. It's a hard war, isn't it? So, they lived happily ever after is not real. It's false to even the highest art of history. You just look at history and you don't see those endings. They had a revival of the old troubles that they had before. The reformers uh, contended um, with them. And of course they had stamped out most of the stuff that had been from the old days. And yet we see Nehemiah come back and um, real life is happening there Again, with all of its imperfections, with all the disappointments that uh, life brings. So, you know, this last chapter is actually it's a it's a sad close of uh, a record which began with such high hope, and there was high hope. There was a reason for that. Um, there was a lot of self-sacrificing effort that uh, was done by Nehemiah and his people. It was a strenuous. And uh, we see a flowing tide of worldliness. Of course, we expect to see that in the world. It is because it is worldly. But you also see it amongst God's people. Disappointing as it is, that's the truth. That's the way it is. Um, it was like a heavy stone that's being pushed up a hill, and and you push it up, and and then you run into a little bit steeper place. And all of a sudden, that arm is trying to hold it back and it starts tumbling back. And it starts rolling back down to the old place where it was at. 
That's all it takes, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, you you had that before. Yeah, then you got to figure out, how do I keep holding this thing and get that out of the way, too? (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) Gravity works against it. Does that happen in our lives? (laughs) Well, in reality, yeah, it does. Does it happen in the church? Yeah, it does. There's a lot of bitter disappointments. Uh, You roll a heavy stone up, and then, you know, you've heard of three steps forward and two steps back. That seems to be the, the way that it goes. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, right? Yeah, that's that's the story there, isn't it? Uh, a great men's uh, work that have been done through the course of history of the church and such has come down to tragedy uh, of the history. And of course, you look in Revelation chapter uh, 2 and 3, you look at the churches there, and you see what once started, and, and then you see how they end. You can look at seminaries today and talk about that. Uh, Out of all the seminaries that are in the United States, there are just a handful at most that are even worth looking at. And uh, in most of the seminaries, they're drilling out young men and they go into the churches and who knows what they don't believe and who knows what they believe. And uh, of course, they take it in the pulpit and they know exactly that they can't preach the word because people can't handle it. So what a tragedy. Now, I start off with really bad news here, don't I? But it's looking at it realistically as you see chapter 13. The struggle is there. The battle is there. But yet we are people with the most hope. I always have to alpha good news when we show the bad news. That's what's in 13. Of course, we started with it last week. We kind of got halfway through. I think we were working in the Sabbath being restored. And, um, of course, they, that was a tragedy of what happened to it. We'd, we had talked about the tithes, um, the people giving, and, of course, the, well, who, was in, who was in the temple? Do you remember that guy? The very enemy was living in the temple. That was his, his house. So, um, we, we moved into what was the um, the Sabbath compromise. We covered most of it. We had touched it before, but what I want to do is starting out this week and then moving on probably through the, the rest of the chapter is some of the misunderstandings of the Sabbath uh, today. And what do we say to people that come out of the Seventh-day Adventist? What do we say to people that come out of the cults, the Worldwide Church of God, the Sacred Name Churches, the uh, the Assemblies of Yahweh and such? What do we, how do we deal with them whenever they come up and uh, Saturday Sabbath is such an issue? So we're going to be looking at the Scripture and see what it says uh, there. And uh, then we will uh, we'll move a little bit further on that. Let's pray. Father, what a pleasure it is to come in with Your people and to come into a place where we want to honor You. Um, thank You that we can come to Your feet as Your Holy Spirit teaches us. And You want us to learn not only what happened historically, but what happens down through church history and then on into the church today and into our own individual lives. And would it that it would make us more aware of the struggles that we have and the more reliance we are to have on Your grace so that we would not uh, 
sin in such a way as we had in the past, but we'll be constantly be growing. And that is our prayer tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verse 15, you have where the Sabbath is to be restored. We'll read some of this and then we'll come back and, and say, well, what do we say to those people who say, well, well this, you are to remember the Sabbath as it says in the Ten Commandments. Verse 15, In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing back in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath of Israel by profaning the Sabbath came about just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I'll use force against you. From that time on, they didn't come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves, come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also, remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your love and kindness. Now, Nehemiah is one who uh, sees the things. He's not, he's not the, um, the preacher there as uh, Ezra had been doing it and uh, some others, but he's the one that has to come in and get things in, in order. And there's some misunderstandings of the Sabbath day. Like I say, you have many cults revolve around this aspect of the Sabbath. And uh, I think those the sacred name groups are uh, trying to make an impression on people. The Seventh-day Baptists, uh, they go all the way back to the 1600s. <laughs> Uh, in England, they they first started in in London actually. Uh, at any rate, they do that because they see it in the Old Testament. They see it in the the Ten Commandments, and so therefore that Saturday Sabbath worship has to be done on that day. Well, let's let's trace through uh, a few significant passages in the Old Testament, and then we'll look in the New Testament in Genesis chapter two. Right off, uh, right off the bat, after uh, we have a creation story, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their host. By the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. So there's the first mention that seventh day he did not create. He's done with his creation. Now he's a God that did his work. He created. It's now done. It's completed. No more need to to create. And and it has to do with rest. 
You'll notice that, that word rest comes up and you deal with Sabbath. The law is not put there at all. And you don't see even Abraham when it comes up to his time or Noah worshiping on a Sabbath day. But we notice that he makes it very important here in that there's a day that there is that was to rest. And not only is that symbolic, but... And, of course, that was something that the people would uh, be able to learn later on. But it's definitely going to be made as a covenant to God's people. So that is the sign of a covenant. Uh, We go to Exodus chapter 20. That's where you find the Ten Commandments. And in verse 8 it says, uh, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. Seventh day is a rest to to cease from your work. Seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. This is literal six days, folks. That, you know, the, the people that stretch this out to some symbolic thing, um, they have uh, they have some problems with these issues. And to make it say something else, now the seventh day really doesn't even mean anything if those six days don't really mean anything. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day seventh day, rest day, and made it holy. He set it apart. Um, So there we have that in the Ten Commandments. We look back at creation, and of course it's in the Ten Commandment portion here. Staying in the law, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Observe the seventh Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your ox, your donkey, or any of the cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant, your female servant, may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And this is to the people that He has chosen. He brought out of Egypt. This is the nation of Israel and they're going to be set apart. They're going to not work one day of the week as the rest of the people do. All the pagan nations and such work seven days a week. That sounds like drudgery. God had a reason. He wanted to set it apart, but He wanted them to rest because He knows. He created the body. He knows how the body works. And so therefore, He knows it needs rest, but it needs spiritual rest. It needs all the kind of rest that, that, that it can have. And even the cattle rest, the, the ox rest, the donkey rest, uh, the sojourner rest, the, the servants rest. You know, Everybody is to rest. And so we've seen that in Exodus now. We've seen it in Deuteronomy. It's definitely in the law. Uh, the law and the prophets represent the whole Old Testament. Let's look at a prophet. Let's look at Ezekiel. Let's 
A lot of the problems that they had is blamed on the fact that they did not keep the Sabbath. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. It's a sign. The Sabbath was a sign of the covenant to the nation of Israel. That's, that's the idea. Like circumcision was a sign. It's a seal of the covenant. That's, he identified uh, with them. They identify with, with Him. They're set apart. He sanctifies them. And that's what the Sabbath did. Uh, it had uh, a lot to do with, with who they were. Anyway, he says, uh, they did not walk in my statutes. They rejected my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I brought them out. Anyway, um, that's some Old Testament... um, Basis behind that, and of course he's speaking to uh, his nation of Israel that he brought out of the wilderness. What about in the New Testament? Do we see anything in there that we are commanded? The church is commanded to worship on the Saturday Sabbath. Well, let's look in Acts chapter 15. You have the first church council, and it's in Jerusalem. That's found in Acts 15. A very notable chapter, a good one to remember because this is where the church had to deal with uh, there were Jews, there were Gentiles now in it, and there were a lot of Jewish laws that the Jews wanted to continue on and then also make the Gentiles do some of those same observances, the rituals, the ceremonies, all the the Sabbaths and all of that, the circumcision. And the conflict really is over circumcision uh, for the most part is really what it's about. But it's it's about that Jewish legalism that had struck and, and been in um, really, I think, as far as the Pharisees were concerned. If you remember, Jesus had to tackle that. Um, that was a major issue and some of the things he broke their bubble. But in verse 28 and 29, what do we do with the Gentiles then? And as you have um, this all put forth of what they've arrived with now, the church, and that's the giants in the church, and Paul and Barnabas and Barsabbas and Silas, and, and uh, of course you have uh, the apostles, and Peter's there. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, saying this to the Gentiles, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, from things strangled, from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you'll do well. Farewell. It's not circumcision. It's not the Sabbath. It's not any of those things, those observances that the Jews had always done. The church is a new thing. And so no longer is that Sabbath going to be the issue that sets people apart, which it always had. You can say, well, what do you mean by that? You just can't say that blanket statement. Well, let's move on. Let's go to Romans and in chapter 14. This is a chapter 
that deals with liberty in Christ, never to over-abuse our liberty that we have, but at the same time there is liberty in Christ, there are things that are not necessarily always black and white, as the law certainly was. Romans 14, 5 and 6, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, gives thanks to God. It says one, to one person a special day might be special to them, to another it may not be. Um, does it, what's that? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Not it's you know it's it's like neither here nor there that one day isn't going to be more important than another. And we're not talking about necessarily uh, the Sabbath there, but uh, some people might have said, "Hey, we have to worship on on the uh, on Saturday." What's that? Yeah, like that hat. Right. Okay. Um, Romans chapter ten. We're still not arriving at you know just something really clear, but we're working that way. This is good to keep in mind. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ fulfilled the law. Um, he fulfilled all those the ceremonials and rituals, all the commands. Everything is there. It's in Christ, and. We're in Christ. We've been found righteous because of His, not only you know His death, but even His life. He lived a perfect life uh, without uh, any flaws, without any sin whatsoever. He, he, of course, He proved He's righteous. He is God, but at the same time, we are to be found in Christ as far as the law is concerned. It's it's been fulfilled in that. And of course, when we trust Christ, we desire now to also have that law as definitely something that we desire to, to follow. But which parts? Well, not necessarily the ceremonial parts as the New Testament will make clear. Because when you get to Galatians, it gets a little clearer. Chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, it's all dealing with legalism and all the traditions and the things that were handed down to um, the Jewish Christians and they wanted to make everybody else Jewish Christians, whether they were Jewish or not. And in uh, Galatians 4, 9 and, 9 and 10, it says, But now that you have come to know God, I like this, or rather to be known by God. Do you get the difference there? It is great to know God. That's what we are to seek about. But something even more important than that, and this is the high view of God that we always want to establish, we're known by God. That's the only way we could even sit here and even understand the things of God. We couldn't know Him by just choosing God. You know, answering the altar call. Today, you know, people say, well, I found God when I was like, you know, preface it with that. But we should say, no, God made me very Exactly. And there's a big difference in that. Even though, yeah, they did pursue God, but 
who really pursued it? And that's what he's saying right here. Coming with the sovereign view that we have, that's why I emphasize parts like that, because they're there everywhere you look at. But if people don't draw that out, you're going to miss it. It's not going to be there. It's like humbling yourself. That's right. That, you know, when we say, oh, I found God, kind of boastful. Like, well, I was the one who sought Him. I'm the one. Yeah, it's kind of like self versus I was broken and God found me in my brokenness. And then from that, I've been pursuing Him because He wills me to. Avell, you hit it right on the head. I was raised up in a Southern Baptist church where I went for years and years, and they're still this way, but they have altar calls. Make a decision for Christ. Come on down, make a decision for Christ. That is not a high view of God. It's not where God knows you. You choose God on your own. And so now God will give you grace. And what you just said summed it all up. That is why there's such a difference in what we try to emphasize. And I wish so much that people could get that. Right. See, but get, that's I what get, it's about. I get that. It's, sometimes it's just like when it comes to like certain churches saying, you know, we can keep on Sabbath. Or, you know, when they say like altar calls, I have no knowledge of altar calls. You know, calling people to come to Christ. And it's like, I wouldn't know the difference between that and, you know... Right. Tell me if you read it in the Bible. Yes, I've never seen it. <laughs> oh, I, I got to where I finally despised the altar call because all it is, and that's that is a pressurized situation where people are uh, emotions uh, bring them down the aisle to join I've the church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I used to do like when I would attend the church. You have to to see that. That's right. She exposed uh, really what she was kind of about, didn't she? Yeah. <laughs> Only one way. Ought to be known by God. How it is that you turn back again, look at this, and he's saying to the Galatians now, to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. He's saying, that age is done. We don't need the building blocks anymore. The Sabbath that they would do, they have that worship on that particular day and don't pick up uh, stones and sticks and that kind of thing. It was a building block. It's the ABCs. That's what elemental things is. One, two, three, four, five. You teach on a very elemental way, as it says here, 
and we're not under that anymore. It's exploded because of Christ and the cross, and now we see the uh, the infinity and the eternal uh, eternal God that we have. And they were being enslaved. They were going back to that. And here's our key verse. 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. It, days. It's probably talking about Sabbath days. As we go further, we'll see that that fits in the context. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. You've gone back to that. We don't need the old wineskins anymore. They've broken. This is the new wineskins that Jesus talked about. This is the new covenant. It's kind of like, uh, kind of like Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Like, like the lamb to the altar. A lot of like the, the altar. Um, they no longer... Yeah, they were just yeah. pictures, weren't they? It's like that was yeah. a demonstration of your faith. Like back then, you would do these things to show that you trusted in God's will. And now that Jesus Christ came, those things were just a representation of Christ. Now Christ is here. Now you just look to Christ because you can't do the work anymore. The work has been done. The it has been sealed. There's nothing you can do at this point that will show your faith to God except for Jesus Christ in your life. Right. I think that makes a real good like, picture. It's like that kind of shows you Old Testament, New Testament, and the divide us between them. But and the Old Testament is good. Yeah. You know, it, it had its proper place, but now, right. because of what happened at the cross, right. is what you said. And it's like, it's like I, I find that people who study the Old Testament, like I find myself as I go through the Old Testament. That's why I start asking questions like, do I need to hold the Sabbath? Because I forget. <laughs> I kind of forget about Jesus and what He's done because I'm so focused on like, the history of the coming of Christ. And, you know, the, the things they had to do to show their faith versus in the New Testament where you are shown by God's grace and by Jesus Christ. And it's, it's very... They did the outward yeah. thing, and the outward doesn't mean anything. Right. It was it was meant for good to have them look to the cross. Right. Ultimately, that's what it was, the ultimate sacrifice. Exactly. Go to Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Now, we've, we, we've been having this build and build. Now you get, the I think, an ultimate passage dealing with Sabbath and all the other things that Judaism was about. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a, and this is just exactly what you're talking about, a mere shadow of what is to come. 
but the substance belongs to Christ. There he's talking about that. Was a, all those were shadows, building blocks, till the time of Christ at the cross, and then it was like right. something new happened. It, it was just mere shadows. That's that's exactly right. And so therefore, there we see, as we were emphasizing Sabbath tonight, there it is there amongst other things. Uh, that would be very clear. Now you, you go back, Jesus taught about the Sabbath also. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, you're probably very familiar with a lot of these verses that he did. I'll give you one or two. Uh, 227, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now, we're not to be under some kind of bondage with it. It was Ultimately, it's really for the good of man that he would take time to rest, take time to be with, his, with, with your own family and, and, and to worship God and all those things with it. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He went and healed on the Sabbath. And uh, that was just like a no-no to, to the Jews. and what it, They would walk more than... Uh, was it was it a half a mile was the most that they were to walk on on the Sabbath? Anyway, that was a Sabbath day's journey or whatever. It's all they could. And of course, they they didn't pay attention to that. <laughs> Those were man-made laws that were made up in that. They weren't in Scripture. But Acts chapter twenty, we we look as the early church develops. You can see how the idea of the Sabbath started developing uh, pretty quickly. This is when they were at Troas, and of course, in our studies on Sunday, we talked about Troas a couple of weeks ago, or a week ago. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. So they gathered on the first day of the week, not the seventh day, but the first day. And what are they doing there? To break bread. There you have a communion going on. Uh, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. If you were addressed by somebody who was seventh-day only people, could you take them to these passages? Uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, not the seventh day, but on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as it may prosper. This is beyond that no collections we made when I come, that you'd already have this. You keep bringing up the collections, the offering, and so whenever I come, it'll all be there. You know, instead of trying to get it all at one time, every, when were they meeting? On the first day of the week. Isn't that interesting? Early in the church, 1 Corinthians is one of the first letters written. Some say it is the first one. In the New Testament. First one by Paul. And so that that is put forth that they were collecting on, on Sundays. And the reason for that, in the early church, just historically, it wasn't because the Catholic Church set it up. And that's exactly what the cults will tell you, or even the Catholic Church will even tell you. But no, it was already established long before there was a Roman Catholic Church. You know, there was a, a universal church, which there's really nothing wrong with. That. That's what Catholic means. But unfortunately, how can you have Rome and universal here? <laughs> 
but you see what I mean? It was already they were already doing it um, in the first century before that the, the these epistles were even closed out before Revelation uh, was. Look in Revelation chapter one, chapter one, verse ten. John, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And you might say, okay, that could be any day or that could be the Sabbath. The only thing is, if you look in history and you look at the very early church, they speak about the Lord's day. What was going on in the second century? They had a Lord's day, even at the end of the first century. They have, we have writings that will prove in the early church they call the Lord's day, also known as Sunday. Or later on, it's going to be known as that. You know, it's 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 not known as Sunday then. You know, the Romans came up with that uh, later on. Or that was, of course, there was they had different gods that they worshipped and such. But anyway, uh, yeah, it did develop, and, and so you, people put the blame on the Catholic Church, and therefore uh, everybody's taking the mark of the beast if you worship on Sunday. You know, that's Seventh Day Adventist and. You know, they, they that's, you know, uh, uh, the cults will say that. Uh-huh. That's the mark of the beast, they'll say. Yeah. Oh. Hebrews chapter 4, I think, is one of my favorite verses. This is the last one I think we'll probably do on, on this. But you see, I think we have plenty of passages to work with. Uh, it's definitely in the, the Ten Commandments. You say, what's in the Ten Commandments? Why aren't we doing that? Well, we are, actually. We certainly are. Uh, matter of fact, everything is fulfilled in the person of Christ. And if we love Him and we love God, we love our neighbor, we will not do anything to dishonor God. Um, Hebrews, if I can turn to the right chapter, it would be in good shape here. Uh, chapter 4, verse verse 4. For He has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, it's like the Hebrew writer is saying, I don't know where that's at. Somewhere in the Bible. No, he's not saying that. Everybody would know this, where this is at. Somewhere concerning the seventh day, well, we know where this comes out of. We just read it earlier, right? Book of Genesis, chapter 2. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they, they shall not enter my rest. Sabbath is dealing with rest. And, and so God rested on the Sabbath day. Well, let's, we're going to have to skip a few verses. Go down to verse 9. Now, there was Joshua who led the people into the promised land. Moses didn't get to do that. Moses dies. Mm-hmm. Joshua then does that. matter of fact, verse 8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's anybody who's a believer in Christ. For the one who has entered his rest, his rest, his Sabbath, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. We, our works aren't going to do anything anyway, are they? Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Now he's saying to the Hebrews, come on over, come on into the rest. Trust in Christ as your Savior. That's the invitation we we all Calvinists should be doing, though. We give the invitation to everybody. We don't know who the ones that have the E that's marked on them. <laughs> so therefore, we have to... And that's what the Hebrew writer is doing. 
be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience that they had out in the wilderness. They fell. They all died out in the wilderness, that one generation. And so he says, enter that rest. Here's the rest. Here's the Sabbath. When you've trusted Christ, you've entered into the rest of Christ. Historically, it's a great thing because we have a day where we don't have to work. Most people usually are off on Sunday. Matter of fact, even Saturday. So we have two days off. The pagans used to work seven days a week. How hopeless is that? What's happening in our nation today? Most people work... I mean, not everybody works seven days, but businesses are open seven days a week. (laughs) Bob could tell you all about that. (laughs) Okay, with all that said... There's a need for a seventh day of rest. And I think it impresses on us physically, uh, intellectually, spiritually. It's joyful to have that rest. We can thank the Lord because we have it. It's a good thing, isn't it? It's a great thing. And you know, unless there be some kind of reservoir for that rest, we'll, we'll, we'll run out. You know, we'll be like a little trickle by a brook. We need a reservoir. We need that spiritual renewal. Uh, physical renewal, uh, intellectual renewal, and that's the advantage of of the of the Sabbath. And of course, here you have the people now. You know, in the text it says you have the farm laborers coming in, bringing the produce to market to Jerusalem on that Sabbath day. That was their way that God was setting them apart. And now they were looking like everybody else. And of course, you had the uh, the. Uh, the Tyrian fishmongers who didn't really care anything for Jehovah Yahweh or the Sabbath and, and their presence would increase the tendency to disregard that day. So, you know, the foreigners, all the other nationalities out there that, that were out and uh, about around Israel and Jerusalem, they had total disregard of any religious observances. They were trying to make a buck. That's what they did. And, um, you know, they, they leavened society. And so they were to be on the guard against that. Nehemiah and Jeremiah, they're a lot alike. <laughs> look in Jeremiah 17, 19 through 27. Not the same kind of guys. But look at what their view was of the Sabbath, for instance. And we've already defined what it is in the New Testament, haven't we? the whole idea of resting in Christ. But he says in verse 19 of 17, Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the public gate through which the kings of Judah come in and go out, as well as in the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Listen to the word of the Lord, kings of Judah, and all Judah and all inhabitants of Jerusalem who come in through the gates. Listen, everybody. Thus says the Lord, Take heed for yourselves. Do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything through the gates of Jerusalem. This sounds like Nehemiah. You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, set apart, as I commanded your forefathers. In what? Ten Commandments. Yet they did not listen or incline their ears, but stiffen their necks in order not to listen or take correction. So what do you have here? Absolute disobedience. Rebelling against a, a great God. And of course, you can read on in 24. It talks about the Sabbath day and keeping it holy and all throughout there. Uh, some criticize Nehemiah for not being the most tactful and polite person in the world. 
<laughs> God's people, though, they sometimes need to know that there's poison that they're drinking. And if somebody's saying, well, you know, I... If I say anything, I, I'll just smile about it and go on. <laughs> I don't want to impose my views. Uh, everybody has a right to their own opinions. What if we said, wait, stop, stop, wait, that'll kill you if you drink that. Don't. And they're about ready to go like that, and you come up there and... Whoa, there's a glass right there. About that. <laughs> which, which one is better? Uh, this is what Nehemiah is gifted with. But, uh, he, he's God's friend, and he has God's loyal love for his people. And so that's that's why that that is done. Uh, he, he had remedies, and of course he went to the nobles, and we know that. And uh, there was practical measures taken, the gates and the guard and uh, opportunities uh, there that were done. What he's doing is that he's cutting off some of the opportunities for sin for the people. There will be no trade if you just shut the gates the night before. And uh, so sometimes just legislation is uh, not good just because of the outward thing, but he was saving people from being tempted. Then there, I know we're going through this as we read it, and of course there's, there's a lot there, but so often in the Old Testament we kind of get the story aspect of it and don't necessarily do a word-for-word thing as we kind of move through it. Maybe too quick, but um, look at verse 22. I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. And then here's his prayer. For this also, remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Two things there. One of them is that there's reward. There's reward for your works that you do in the church that are done for the honor of God. At the close of each section, he has a prayer. You have one here in verse 22. You also had one at, uh, at the end of verse 14. Remember this, O oh my God, do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and services. So you have 14, you have it in verse 22. Then you'll have it again over in verse 29 at the end of the marriage forbidden section. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood in the Levites. So there's a reward that he knows that that he he wants from God in a sense. Remember me what I've done. But there's another thing I think that's important too, because he says, according to the greatness of your loving kindness or has said or mercy. To your loving kindness, to your mercy. When he has when you deal with God's mercy, you're dealing with our sinfulness. He could judge you. And so he brings the forth the fact of his loving kindness or his mercy. He's conscious of his own sin. It seems like he it's all about Nehemiah here and hey, you know, does he have any faults? Well, he's a man. We don't we don't see sin necessarily here, but he's a man who who has sinned, who will still sin. But he's a holy man of God. And so he says, Remember me. And he keeps saying, remember me, throughout the book of 
Nehemiah, doesn't he? But he doesn't want to be drafting with the rest of them. <laughs> He's like, I did what you said, God, you know. And I came to the spot, he built the wall, I told him what you told me to tell him, and they're still not listening. You know, God, take it off. You know, take this away from me. It's not my fault, Lord. You know that. Like, That's right. Like, you know, I've devoted myself to you, and you know that. So it's like, that like he doesn't want to be wrapped in with the rest of them as they are willingly disobedient. <laughs> That's that's it exactly, and 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 then he balances this one this time of saying uh, he's not without sin right. too, and of course that's in in all the prayers in the Bible, whether it be Daniel or um, of course uh, Ezra or Nehemiah, their prayers they associate with the rest of the people though too. Okay, here's their sin, but it's not like he's a self righteous one, and so there in this uh, section we do see that. It's a, deal with me according to your great mercy. <laughs> now, the, the next section is, is dealing with the marriage compromise thing and, and what an alliance that the, the people were doing with the pagans there. Verse 23, In those days I saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Do you remember Ammon and Moab? Do you remember uh, a person that who had uh, been there uh, as... Um, they, matter of fact, the word for Ammon is really Ammon. Have you ever heard of Ammon today? Modern Ammon, Jordan. Same area. Name still sticks. Uh, you might remember Lot. Yeah, Ruth uh, come from the, the Moabites, and and so all in that area, and that's surrounding, you know, Israel. I mean, it's close to that very same area but there they are they're, they're marrying these women from there and it had been a problem that had been corrected just a few years before and guess what it's popped up again I think this is a lesson for all Christians as we struggle against sin we don't want to fall back into that so they married foreign, foreign women Children and and the really bad thing is that the children didn't even speak Hebrew anymore. You go into another culture now; they're going to pick up what their mother is going to teach them, which is going to be another language. And what's so bad about that? Well, you can't understand the Hebrew scriptures now. That's what it's written in. That time, I think they only had one version: Hebrew. <laughs> as, as for their children have spoken the language of Ashdod and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah but the language of his own people so I contended with them cursed them struck some of them pulled out their hair made them swear by God you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves did not Solomon king of Israel Sin regarding these things, over 700 pagan wives, yet among the many nations there was no king liking, quite the bounds here, and he was loved by his God. Solomon was a believer. How can you have 700 pagan wives and be a believer? All the grace of God. It is an amazing thing. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. We can say, hey, if you can do that, why can't anybody else? It's okay. If you sin, you're covered by God's grace. May it never be, Romans 6 says. May genital. No, not ever. No way. 
right? May it not be. We don't have license to sin, right? But this is what they're doing. We need to understand that marrying an unbeliever will not only affect us, but it will have a negative impact on the children and what are the, the emotional attachments that come from the opposite sex. It, it's amazing what pull can do. Satan never ever comes along and says to a Christian young person, hey, wouldn't you like to marry this nice young girl from Ashdod? And she's a pagan, and she'll lead your children out of the church and astray from the Lord. And Satan is saying this, right? He says, your children will be half pagan. Your grandchildren will be completely pagan. Rather, he says things like this, your parents are too strict. They follow God's laws and insist that you follow them too. You need to make your own choice. Could he be saying some things like that? You're missing out on some things. You don't know what you've missed. Look at how much fun you could have with this sexy babe from Ashdod. <laughs> yeah, right. Such a square. It suddenly widens and widens until, boom, the dam suddenly gives way, right? So he he contended with those who were guilty. And even the grandson of the high priest got married to a pagan woman. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil, I'm in verse 27, by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joida, the son of Elishabah, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat. Sanballat, the enemy, comes in and is a big star here at the end. His... Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him from here. Drove him out of here. Kicked him out. Whatever it was, he drove the young man away. Chased him out of town. I think it's a glorious word. Before we confront anyone in sin, though, we have to, first of all, check our own selves. See what our motives are. What are our motives, really, in any time that we think about that? Jesus was gentle. And he taught gently, but at the same time, he pronounced woes on the Pharisees and called them hypocrites and blind guides and and uh, whitewashed tombs, if you remember, right? And Paul was filled with the Spirit. He told Elamus, the, the magician, remember him in the book of Acts, Acts 13, that he was full of deceit and fraud and he called him a son of the devil. <laughs> and uh, he struck him blind. So... Uh, what Nehemiah did here is not too foreign. We know what Jesus did in, in the temple as He cleaned house there. They violated the covenant. Ezra had run into this same kind of evil before. This is the book before Nehemiah. Ezra's kind of been helping Nehemiah in a lot of senses. It was a, an alarming defection. Would you see a parallel here between um, Nehemiah driving out people who were being impure and... Paul asking the Corinthians to take out the, the man who's having a contestuous relationship? Absolutely. And that's where the church discipline came in. 1 Corinthians 5, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, no doubt about it. And that's that's being tough. That's that's hard. But that, that man, of course, that man was a sexual uh, relations going on and had to be taken care of there. 
and as as things go in in, in the church, uh, that those things have had to be practiced in the church in in this church here. Uh, many of you are familiar. We've we've had that happen, and happen more than once. Happened several times. Um, sad to say, but that's what happens in a church. You have sinful people, all of us. Sometimes things can get too far over the line. There are certain things where there has to be a discipline. And um, the really sad thing is that most of the time uh, the evidences of restoring a person are not seen. Not that the effort wasn't made, but usually the person or people or whatever are too chided by the thing and they just leave and you never see them again. So it's it's like you want restoration, but it usually doesn't happen. And these days and times, it's almost... Unless God is really working huge in it, and He does, but at the same time, uh, it's rather difficult. Yeah. And there are there are times of restoration too, so I can't say they're all that way, but it does happen. It's, it's a sad thing. It is, and uh, of course these are these are pretty hard things that are happening. These are very serious things. I mean, they absolutely go up against God's holy law. I'm kind of gone over eight. What about marrying unbelievers? What does Scripture say about it? Well, we all know one of them. It's really easy to to figure out. Six fourteen. <laughs> Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Second Corinthians six fourteen. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Christ and the, the devil, right? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Right? They don't have anything in common. It isn't like what it was before. Is yeah. it? <laughs> no, it's not. You're not alone. And many, of, many of our families are you know, very much like that. Absolutely. Every one of us do that. You end up looking at the past and you're like, man, why did we get along so great? Yeah. It's like, because I want to like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That reminds me of what you were talking about on Tesla earlier. Um,
Um, it's one thing about friends, but living together. Um, anyway, Nehemiah wanted to... He was disappointed, I'm sure, but this memory of, of the covenanters that they had, remember when they made that covenant? And there it was, but he brings them back into what they're supposed to be doing. But we know the rest of the story again, don't we? And this is not the conclusion here, but this is real life. And um, that's why at the very end here, i close with this, I've gone way over time here, but um, I'm just uh, trying to find Nehemiah here <laughs> before the Psalms. Okay, here we go. Right at the end, we, we've seen where talked about, uh, you know, there you have the, the grandson, the high priest and such. In verse 29, Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Remember them, they've done. So, yeah. Look, look at this, you know, there's a retribution that be put forth as far as a judgment. And they are held to higher responsibility. Yeah, you're talking about the priest here. I mean, like... At least kind of the Gentiles kind of have an excuse on, you know, with some okay. leniency because, you know, God didn't choose them. They don't know God better, do they? It's like, it's like, you know, we were adopted. Well, that's biblical. Know, Where does judgment start at? The household of God. He, he will bring the judgment upon the rest of the nations, but it first starts with yeah. the church. So, yeah. You know, it's interesting. You know, kind of going back to. Uh, friendships and stuff. You know, Victor, you know Victor. Yeah. I, I kind of, I haven't cut him off. I just, there came to be a point where, you know, Scripture was saying that you just can't have fellowship and you can't really hang out with them and you can't really eat at the same table with them. And those Scriptures came across kind of hard to me, but I, it wasn't until, like, Victor and I had conflict because it was, it was that he really wasn't going to change and he was really going to stick to what he was doing and it was hurting me because I was seeing it happen I was seeing it take place and you know, I could only warn him so much and he just didn't want to hear it anymore and at that point it, it was causing me to be angry it was causing me to be frustrated I had, you don't want um, him to take you down yeah. and then your family down yeah, and and so, it, so it kind of started spreading out and then Ashton had to tell me like every time get the problem with Victor you get angry you know you, you start to get frustrated and mad and it kind of comes back out on us and I had to really stop and think about it and it just came to a point where it was like I couldn't have him around anymore like I had I couldn't have him around didn't want to talk to him so I just kind of had to let him go kind of you know, he had a place to go. Yeah, that's a wise so, decision. Not that you yeah, will, so you, you you haven't quit praying for yeah. him and you would desire that he would know yeah. the Lord. And that was even one of the things I warned him. You know, you kind of warn people. And I always said, Victor, I have to tell him, I said, Victor, the paths you're walking and the paths I'm walking are so different. And I have to tell him, I said, if you continue down this path, I'm going to kick you out. Not because I'm mad at you or because I hate you, it's just because what you're choosing to do is not it's not what we're you're gonna your actions are gonna cause me to kick you out and it's like I can see that in like an overview of how God treats his people like versus you know versus uh, his chosen people 
the Israelites every time that they would not repent, he would send them in to conquer them and kick them out. <laughs> and he would turn his back on them for like 70 years, you know, and Jeremiah, he turned his back on them for 70 years. And then, you know, he brought them back. And, uh, you know, this just kind of seems to be the process. So, you know, and then with us believers, you know, there's there's a time where if we are believers and we don't repent and we don't stop sinning, he will, you know, it says that, you know, you'll wake up in the morning early to praise him and he won't listen to you. Like, you'll seek him, but you won't find him. And it's like, it's like, there's, because I met, I met a friend who was going to those things where, you know, he was, uh, he was pursuing his flesh and he was cheating on his life and he was hiding things from her like that and going to strip clubs and, and he was a believer, but then he said, like, like, he got this real scare and God was warning him and he wasn't listening and eventually he would start to wake up early, early in the morning and not know why and he'd read scriptures and scriptures was warning him and warning him. He finally got the warnings, but by the time he got the warnings, it was like, almost, it wasn't too late for God's grace because his grace came back. Um, but, you know, God had let him kind of start, kind of suffer in, like, loneliness away from God. And, he, he said he saw like a demon on his, on his wall one night and he was so afraid he couldn't move and he woke his wife up telling her to pray because he knew that God was not going to listen to his prayers because he had not been sinning yet. And so the wife kind of was like, yeah, but he really woke her up and so she prayed and he said that the, the demon disappeared. And he, he showed me in scripture where it talked about um, spirit fly across and have like red eyes or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure. But uh, I read the scripture verse and, you know, so they freaked him out and, you know, it was interesting listening to his testimony. But, well, what does the, the scripture say about uh, uh, our uh, behaviors and our, our heart conditions, what it can do, what it does, what the spirit reacts to that with greed greed the Holy Spirit and quench you know quench the Spirit yeah greed the Holy Spirit you know and so yeah I, you know he'll like he definitely does those things so I mean he you know he got God's grace with him and you know and he's had a stronger connection and, you know he shares his testimony with a lot of people and, it actually helped me go through some personal, person. You know, I was smoking marijuana again and I wouldn't quit and then I could feel God by warning me to quit. And I was like, it's like, okay, I'm quit, I'm quit. And then when the opportunity presented itself, it was like I didn't really want to quit. And so I would pursue my flesh again. And uh, I was causing a lot of problems between me and Ashton. And I could see it coming out of me and the kids. And it was just a hard time. And then hearing him, like it was like I was warning me in this area and then he like confronted me to his friend and, and then it was like either I'm going to take these warnings or you know uh, or you know it's going to get worse and I don't know if I can handle worse you know right now I'm always feeling pretty low about myself you know my relationship so it was, it was good it was God's grace you know it's mercy so I've been like three months clean well, this, this is what was uh, happening in Nehemiah. There, there was a purification. And, and of course, as we, we wrap this up, we think, we think about that. See, that, that's those battles. I wanted to go back to some of the things that was back there 
Nehemiah is showing how serious it is to go back and do those things that uh, we once did that were sinful. So he purified them from everything foreign, appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. So he didn't give up on them. You know, he didn't quit the people because of all of this going on. He just stayed with it, didn't he? He stayed and helped make this thing go, at least for you know a while. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. So you know there there's sacrifices, there are ceremonies and such. And then he says this one more time: Remember me, O God, for good, for all that 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 He's done. You know, He He knew that His heart was right, and of course He knows God's done it. But that's that's dealing with uh, rewards, not you know, of course in the future, but even even now. So that's the way that Nehemiah wraps up. It does kind of end up on a on a pretty good note. Um, it's just that. Semper reformandi, folks. We have to just keep reforming. Stay in the Word. And stay in it. And stay in it. What's that? Be careful with the downgrade. Oh, the downgrade. Like controversy. That Spurgeon had. The downgrade is the Word of God just sliding, right? Yeah. you're saying? And he, he wrote um, about... With his friend, I don't remember what his name, but they, they sort of looked back at church history and even the Scriptures and they... They always saw that there was there was always a pattern, and basically you're gonna have the church be purified through persecution. Once that persecution is over, and we we get to a period of peace, even here in Jeremiah, where you have them all repent and come back and be restored. Once you have peace and and every everything's well, then suddenly the enemy starts creeping back in slowly and slowly. Things start becoming more and more corrupted. And God purifies it again through more persecution, and so, and so that's what He was dealing with it in His day. Because now that nonconformists were not being, um, they weren't being persecuted anymore, whereas they had always been. John Bunyan, mm-hmm. all those guys, and all of a sudden you have Spurgeon, who is able to preach to thousands of people, and so he's looking all around and he's saying, "Whoa, we're on the downgrade right now because we've, we've had a period of peace." And now all these people are believing in all these doctrines that are that are against the scriptures, right? And, so. and ever since then, it's oh. continually gone down. That was in the late 1800s, into the 1900s, and that's where liberalism just came in big time yeah, in the church. And ever today, since then, it's, it's gone. Dead. London is absolutely dead. Matter of fact, you look for a church there on 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 Sunday, and you'll be amazed if you can find one. They're there, but very, very rare. Jesus says that when 